Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Forscher. He is Assistant Professor of Psychology at the J. William Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Arkansas. He studies social disparities and what to do about them. He also has a strong interest in research methods in psychology. Okay, so Dr. Fersher, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so let's see. One of the big, one of the big topics of your work is implicit biases. So could you explain us briefly what are implicit biases about? Because it, it seems that it implies that then we also have explicit biases. And sometimes when people think about biases, they, they tend to per perhaps join them all together and, th and think that perhaps we only have biases of one type or another. So if you could do that for us. Sure. Yeah. The basic idea behind implicit bias is that there are certain things happening inside one's head that uh, people are completely aware of and that those can influence your behavior. Um, and often th these are talked about in the context of how you treat people of uh, members of different groups, uh, but the concept has been applied to a lot of other types of behavior too. Um, and the, the whole big idea behind it is um, you have mental processes, you're not aware of them, and they influence your behavior. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so, so what's the big difference there between implicit biases and explicit biases? Is it that in the second case people are aware of the, of the biases or, or not? Yeah, so um, uh, some people focus on that awareness part of it. Um, there's, uh, there's a debate about um, how to define these things because uh, if you if you define implicit biases based on awareness, I mean that, that can cover a lot of different kinds of behavior. Um, that can cover a, a lot wide range of mental processes too. Um, awareness is one of the things that people often focus on. Um, so uh, they make the distinction between uh, the processes that you're aware of and the processes that you aren't, and um, the stuff that you're not aware of gets lumped into the implicit bias bucket and the stuff that you are aware of gets lumped into the explicit bias bucket. Um, but there's also a component of um, uh, how automatic the processes are. Um, so uh, certain processes you are easier to control, certain processes are less easy to control. Um, the processes that are less easy to control um, are sometimes lumped into the implicit bias bucket. Um, so uh, yeah, there, there is a bit of debate about um, how to draw these distinctions or even how useful it is to draw the distinctions. Um, usually implicit bias is uh, considered the stuff that is uh, people are less aware of and or that is less controllable. Mm -hmm. uh, and what is the relationship between biases being them implicit or explicit and behavior? I mean, is it the case that if we have a bias, then that directly causes a behavior, or sometimes we have biases that perhaps we can have some control over them? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's useful to make a distinction between um, the mental processes that um, lead to a behavior and the behavior itself. Um, I 
often when, uh, especially in media accounts or um, in uh, op-eds, for example, where people are trying to draw this on this concept of implicit bias, they label certain types of behavior themselves as implicit bias. Um, I, I think as, as a psychologist, you know, psychologists typically like to distinguish between the thing that you observe, the behavior uh, that you're trying to explain, and the mental processes that might lead to it. Uh, because the fact is that we don't, if you see any one behavior, it's, it's hard to know what exactly is causing it. Like you, you don't have, no one has telepathy. You can't look into someone's mind and say, and see, oh, yeah, you know, these are the exactly the causes of this thing that I'm seeing. That's not the way the world works. Um, so I think it's useful to make that distinction between what you see, the behavior that you want to explain, and the processes that lead to it. Um, that's not, I, I'm not sure that that's a typical position, um, especially, you know, if you look at things like um, the Starbucks, um, that, that got a lot of play in the United States anyway. Um, I saw a manager of Starbucks uh, called the police on some black customers, and a lot of people were pointing to this and saying, oh, it's, a, it's an example of implicit bias and why we need to do something about it. The fact is that we don't know. Um, and we usually don't know when we look at one instance of behavior and we're trying to explain what caused it. Um, that's, that's a really, really hard problem. And usually the only way we figure out something about cause is we look at a bunch of different instances that or a bunch of, we, we construct a scenario and that that's designed to test what the causes are. So anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying, um, yeah, I do think it's useful to make this dis distinction between the behavior that you observe and the processes that you think lead to it, um, because uh, in the in everyday life we usually don't know what causes what. Mm -hmm. Yes, but I mean, if we are trying to study unconscious biases, even to know what they are about, we have to have an approach of uh, getting to them indirectly through studying people's behavior, how they react to certain cues perhaps or how they behave through towards certain groups of people and things like that or at the very least i would say to have imagiological studies that is fmri and things like that to see if there are certain areas of the brain that are correlated with certain perhaps thoughts that people have uh, when they are when they are primed with certain stuff like for example images from other people from different races and different groups of people and things like that i i mean perhaps what i want to ask you is that uh, to have access to people's unconscious biases we have to have this indirect approach of uh, studying how they affect their behavior right well okay um, implicit bias is uh, one of the reasons that this, this, the discussion around it gets so complicated and I think sometimes confused is that um, people um, end up referring to implicit bias for multiple reasons. So there's one reason to try to understand implicit bias is a scientific reason um, because we're interested in what causes people to behave in certain ways. and 
um, implicit bias might be a useful scientific tool for understanding behavior. So that's one reason. Uh, a separate reason is um, a, a moral reason. So some people have um, uh, a strong moral feeling that uh, unconscious bias is wrong and it's something that they want to address. Um, that's different from the but it could be one reason to uh, to tr to use this concept of implicit bias and to um, use it as a, as an analytical tool. Um, I, another separate reason might be a public policy reason. So, I, from the public policy standpoint, if say um, uh, a policymaker is interested in uh, reducing the number of uh, unarmed black men that got shot, that get shot by police. Um, they might think, well, one of the reasons for that might be um, implicit bias. And so if I can find some public policy levers that reduce implicit bias or, or mitigate its effects, that might allow me to get to the public policy outcome that I'm interested in. So all separate reasons. Um, and the scientific conversation, I think, is um, sort of separate from the other two types of conversations that I was talking about. Um, and, and I think even what scientists call implicit bias in that scientific conversation looks pretty different from what the policymakers are calling implicit bias and what the you know people who are interested in that moral case are calling implicit bias. And also the understandings of what it means for implicit bias to influence behavior are different in each of those different conversations. So I, I think that's partly why this uh, this whole discussion gets so mixed up because people are talking at cross purposes you know the scientists are over here talking about implicit bias which looks very different from what the activists and policymakers are calling implicit bias and also the aims are different you know the scientists are interested in developing this understanding of of the human mind and how it um, how the human mind uh, is related to behavior how it produces behavior um, but that's not really the goals of the activists or the policymakers. That that's sort of beside the point. Um, and so uh, you mix it all up on you know uh, op-eds and and so on. And uh, the, it just looks very confused, and it's difficult for someone who's outside of the scientific world and the activist world and the um, and the in the public policy world to like understand what the heck is going on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so would you like to tell us perhaps what are some of the main types of implicit biases that you study and that you think have the biggest effects in terms of people's behavior and perhaps due to that also have the uh, biggest impact on society, perhaps? Okay, so uh, I'm, I think I'm uh, a, a bit of a weirdo in the scientific world in that um, I am a little bit skeptical that implicit bias is important at all um, for influencing behavior. Um, it could be, but I don't think that the, I think that the evidence is not strong that it is. So I guess my answer would be, um, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure that any form of implicit bias is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well. And th that's very interesting, your answer, because I mean, even recently, things like the implicit bias association test has been questioned by several people. Uh, they question mainly its validity and 
uh, and perhaps its pr prediction power or something like that. So would you like perhaps to talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. So my um, my issues with implicit bias as a concept um, are separate from uh, some people's issues with the implicit association test or IET that you were describing. Um, I, I think the IET is a perfectly fine tool. Um, sure, it has its flaws. Any any measure used by psychologists does have its flaws. Um, my my issue with the concept of implicit bias, first of all, I don't necessarily have an issue with the concept. Um, that's uh, not, not exactly the right way to put it. Um, I'm just not sure that it's an important thing for policymakers to be talking about, um, for example, because I'm not sure that it has a strong influence on behavior that is important for policy. And that position comes from um, a pretty big project that uh, is, is still somewhat ongoing that I did with uh, a bunch of different collaborators, including Calvin Lai, he was a, a lead on this project, where we looked at um, I, every study that we can find where people did some sort of manipulation to try to change implicit bias. Um, and if implicit bias um, I did have a causal relationship with people's behavior, you'd, you'd expect that if you change it, um, that the behavior would change as well. Um, and what we found was there are a bunch of different procedures that do change people's measured implicit bias, um, but their behavior doesn't change in a consistent way um, with the change in implicit bias, um, which is what you'd expect if uh, there was this causal relationship. Now, you know, there are a lot of different um, caveats. So if you look across the studies that um, people have conducted, um, something like only 6% uh, have a measurement that uh, of implicit bias and or behavior um, 24 hours or more after the manipulation. Um, and if you wanted these ways of changing implicit bias to be um, used in public policy contexts, for example, well, you would hope that people would be like studying whether the changes that these things produce would have any sort of would, would last at all. And that's not what people are doing. Um, also, the kinds of behaviors that people investigate are really trivial, in my opinion. Um, so there are things like how close a, a person chooses to sit next to a, a confederate of the experimenter. So the experimenter recruits um, a, a black person, has them like sit in a hallway and some um, the, the measurement, the behavior that that they're examining, these people are examining, is um, whether the participant chooses to sit really close to the confederate or far away. And that's supposed to be an indicator of racial bias. And yeah, I mean, maybe that's important, but it's pretty far removed from something like a shooting of an unarmed black man. I mean, there's just no comparison between those behaviors. And yet, in a lot of the conver public conversation about implicit bias that's the kind of thing that people want to apply that concept to is, is uh, shootings or um, I, you know, the medical care that black people receive. And those are really far removed from each other. Um, so that's, that's sort of, that's an inference problem. It's a problem of generalizing a concept from one thing to another. It's unclear that you, you can make that leap, but even like, if you just say, okay, this is what we've got in the studies that we've conducted, 
and the, the types of behavior that uh, are examined in these studies are um, maybe far removed from the, uh, the generalizations that we want to make. And I would characterize them as kind of trivial. Um, so even if you say that, um, there isn't much evidence that changing implicit bias leads to a change in those kinds of behaviors that, that are, I would characterize as trivial. And that's, I, I think that's pretty damning. Um, now, I, it, it's also true that like, I could be, I could be proven wrong. Like there's, I, I think the standard of, um, the research standard, the rigor of the studies that we have right now is not high enough. But maybe with more rigorous studies, um, we'd we'd find something different. Maybe we'd get more evidence of of change. But my my point, my perspective is we're not there yet, and that's why I think uh, this implicit bias, this concept, might be, might not be a concept to be applied to areas of public policy, and it, it might not even necessarily be that that important scientifically. Um, although I think. But there, is, that's probably not true. Um, it's probably still worth scientists using this concept. But um, bringing it to public policy, no, I, I think we're nowhere uh, near the, the point where we can do that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if at least at this point in time there's no proven causal relationship between implicit bias and, in this case, discriminatory behavior, let's say, uh, what about uh, stereotypes and prejudices? I, I mean, people also talk a lot about how stereotypes and prejudices affect uh, people's behavior uh, to toward people from uh, groups they discriminate against. So what would you have to say about that? Okay, so the, yeah, that's, that's an area that's entirely separate from implicit bias. Um, implicit bias, as I mentioned before, is this idea that um, there are mental processes that are, you know, somewhat automatic um, uh, that people aren't aware of and uh, that have an influence on people's behavior. And that's the concept that I'm taking issue with. Um, uh, or, or to be more precise, what I take issue with is how much of an influence they have on people's behavior and whether that influence is an important policy matter. Um, an important pragmatic matter um, because there probably is some sort of influence maybe but maybe it's just not an important one um, stereotypes and prejudice are are different so stereotypes uh, to a social scientist like me they're the stereotypes are the ideas that people have about social groups um, so women are caring that's an idea about the social group of women and a prejudice is that's usually social scientists think of that as the feelings that people have about social groups. Um, so whether you feel warmly or coldly towards the group of women or men or whatever the group is, um, those undoubtedly have an influence on people's behavior towards those social groups. I mean, it's it's almost going to be trivially trivially true that if you think women are caring or if you have that caring that you know what sorts of occupations you think women are going to go into um but like that's not that's not a radical thing for me to say like the thoughts that people have about social groups or food or what you name the object those thoughts are going to have an influence on 
people's behavior towards members of that social group or whatever the, the object is. That, that's just, that's trivially true. So it's not even necessarily an interesting thing for me to say that your thoughts about members of a particular social group, the stereotypes, are going to influence my behavior towards uh, members of those social groups. Like, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Yes, but uh, I would also like to ask you a little bit more about uh, how we study stereotypes and prejudice. Sure. Be because, I mean, uh, I I've also wanted to ask you about this because I've been having quite a lot of evolutionary psychologists on the show, and with a few of them I talked a little bit about this. And uh, is there any possibility that perhaps uh, the beliefs that sometimes people express as being the causes of their behavior. I mean, sometimes people say, oh, I, I, I hold this belief about that particular group of people, uh, and then we conclude that it is because that particular person holds that belief that then she acts in a certain way toward that group of people. But could it be the case that at least sometimes what people say are the beliefs that they hold about certain groups of people are not really what causes the behavior. And perhaps sometimes it is even just people rationalizing their behavior after the fact. Sure, yeah. Um, so you could reasonably ask the question, if you have a behavior um, that you care about explaining, um, so it could be, you know, discrimination or whatever. Um, how much of the, um, uh, how much of people's of that behavior can you explain using their beliefs, and how much of it is due to other things? And are people's apparent beliefs consistent um, with the behavior, or is it sort of, uh, um, is it sort of uh, an epiphenomenon, something that people rationalize after the fact? And I. I bring that back to the idea of implicit bias. That is one of the, uh, the reasons, I think, why the idea of implicit bias is so interesting to a lot of people, um, because the whole idea behind implicit bias is that, um, well, you know, you may think that you're a fair-minded person, but really, if you look at those cognitive tests that I give you, aha, look at your, uh, the things that you're saying are uh, completely different from the results of this cognitive test. And uh, for many that, um, is counterintuitive and sometimes disturbing and really interesting and whatever. Um, and so I, and I think, so I'm a social psychologist. Um, I think social psychologists have um, uh, been really uh, captivated by that idea um, that um, people's, uh, what people do is really different from what people say they will do and what, what people in people's like express beliefs. And that probably is true that there, uh, to some extent, that there are um, some uh, differences between uh, what people do and what people say they will do. Um, but um, to bring up a kind of a new topic um, that's very important to me. Um, so psychology and social psychology in general have been going through a reevaluation of a lot of our, our past studies. Um, and uh, I think the, the fact that um, this, uh, the, the fact that uh, we can show you, hey, there's this cognitive test that's so different from what you're actually doing, 
the fact that that's so um, media friendly and appealing, I think, has led to an incentive to create these studies where you show this like really important difference between what people do and what people say they will do. Um, it, but it seems like a lot of those may not be true, or at least that's my opinion. Uh, a lot of those like disparities between what people do and what people say say they will do. Um, so I'm just a little bit skeptical of that whole uh, line of reasoning that um, there's this big difference between what people do and what people say they will do. Um, I, I'm not sure how much of that is actually true. It probably is true to some extent, whether it's true in general. I, I mean, I, I guess I'm skeptical. Mm -hmm. Yes, but, but could it be the case that perhaps through some processes of coalitional psychology, uh, people create a group identity and perhaps then because uh, if they were to behave in a certain way toward people from out groups or a particular out group, let's say, uh, it would benefit them and also their group. And so they decide to behave in a certain way in regards to those self-interests. And then uh, only after the fact do they do they elaborate something in their heads to justify why, why they behave wrongly toward that group? Yeah, but I think, I think a lot of the time people are aware that they're doing that. Get a group of uh, U.S. Democrats and U.S. Republicans, and uh, a lot of people will tell you, I, I don't want anything to do with Republicans, or I don't want anything to do with Democrats. Um, some, of the, some percentage of the time they might not be aware that they're doing it, but... You know, I, I think in I think people are correct about their perceptions of the beha their behavior more than social psychologists anyway have portrayed. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I don't know. I, I just I think it's very clear that uh, Democrats and Republicans, um, especially right now, hate each other, and um, I, you know, are perfectly aware that of that um, feeling of dislike. Um, and their preference for um, people of their the, the same political affiliation. Um, that might not be true of all all groups. You know that is an empirical question. But I I guess I I'm very skeptical of that claim that um, you know a lot of what we do we're just not aware of. Um, I I think that's one of the things one of the types of claims that has not survived well in this, um, you could call it a reproducibility crisis in psychology. Um, so it, it may be true, but I think it's less true than what we once thought maybe go back 20 years in psychology. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. And what would you say are some of the scientific, scientifically backed approaches, if there are any, of course, or at least some validated ones, uh, to, to change how people uh, think about uh, groups of people that they usually discriminate against, uh, through stereotypes and prejudice and things like that, of course? Um. So I think one of the um, one of the better ones is having cross group contact. Um, it has to be contact on a on an equal footing, uh, ideally with a common goal. 
Um, mm -hmm. uh, norms is another one. Um, if you norms are um, the the rules that are present in a certain environment, um, to give you an example, um, like if I'm going to have a Skype meeting, I know that it would be weird if I showed up not wearing clothing. Um, I know that through norms, um, or that's one of the ways I know that. Um, and it's I people are often aware of the norms that are in a certain environment. And they certainly have a powerful influence over what we do. Um, uh, there's a researcher named Betsy Palak, um, who, for example, found that um, norms changed in wake of the um, U.S. Supreme Court decision um, permitting gay marriage. Um, and uh, that's one area where I think in the United States, at least we've seen really dramatic changes in people's attitudes and behaviors uh, about um, uh, gay couples. Um, so that's a compelling demonstration of uh, the, the power of that idea of norms. Um, so I'd say those are those are two big ones that seem to be seem to have some good evidence behind them. Mm -hmm. And simply informing people about the fact that they have certain biases and what those biases are about, does that help in any way? No, that's not enough. Um, so I, I, I think, okay, so there are a couple layers to that question. Um, one is, um, uh, that idea that informing people that um, they have a bias, that is, um, there's a presumption there that um, most of people's, most of the why people are biased is due to these unconscious processes that they're not aware of. And as I was just saying, you know, I have, I personally have some skepticism about whether that's actually true. Um, but if it is to the extent that it is true, um, just informing people about their biases still won't be enough because the whole idea behind uh, like implicit bias is that there's some level of automaticity to the behavior as well. Um, so it's not enough that you inform people about um, uh, a bias that they have. You also have to give them some way to interrupt it. Um, and the, the person has to actually get up and do that thing. Um, so awareness would be one part of it. Um, two others that I'd say are important are uh, motivation. So someone has to actually want to address the problem and then effort. They have to actually have to get up and do the thing that might interrupt the influence of that process. Mm -hmm. Yes, but, but I mean, it's not easy. It's, uh, it's not simply pe uh, people being aware that they have a bias and because they perhaps are motivated to become better people and to not let that bias affect their behavior toward other people. Uh, th that's not enough because, I mean, th there's even the, the phenomenon of bias blind spot that is people that just because they think that they are aware of their own biases, then they believe that they no longer affect their behavior, right? Yeah, so you can um, draw a parallel to um, uh, like trying to, um, 
a clinician trying to get a depressed client to do something about the depression. Um, one of the reasons that uh, depression it can be so debilitating um, is that um, it, it can be hard to tell that you're depressed while you are. Um, uh, you sort of become a, accustomed to a new normal um, where everything just looks a little bit dull. Um, but also depressions that's your motivation to do anything about it. Um, so there's a, a concept um, in uh, clinical psychology called motivational interviewing, um, which in which um, the whole idea is to try to um, first like get someone to the point where they recognize that there's you know things could be better. Um, I then you try to remove some of the barriers to like getting that person to do something about you know, their depression or whatever the problem might be. You're sort of move, moving th people through uh, certain stages of change. Um, while in a, in a similar way, um, getting someone to um, do something to address a bias that they might have, a social bias, um, could be thought of as a, a form of motivational interviewing. Um, you're trying to get people um, motive, aware that there might be an issue that they might want to work on, uh, motivated to do something about it, and then you give them some tools to actually do the thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've already alluded a little bit to this, but I would like to ask you a little bit more about that. That is, you talked uh, about a bit about uh, the replicability or the replication crisis, particularly in psychology. Uh, and I know that you are very interested in the science reform movement and you are and you're involved in some of its initiatives. So could you tell us more first about what is the science reform movement and perhaps then some in initiatives you're involved in that you would like for people to know a little bit more about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, when I was in graduate school, I think I was in my second year, um, I received a, a paper um, over my email um, where a, a very famous psychologist that I had actually, I had actually read quite a bit of his work um, as, as part of my graduate training. Um, I had published a paper in the top journal in my field uh, showing that ESP was real. Uh, and I, I received that paper over email and I was like, what the fuck? Um, something really weird is happening here. Oh, by um, the way, could you just tell people what is ESP? Because some people might not be aware. I, um, yeah, I, I, the, the title of the paper was Feeling the Future. And the idea was that people had some sort of sense. They, they could recognize future events before they happened. Their feelings allowed them to see into the future and um, change their behavior um, on, on the basis of being able to see into the future. That's fucking crazy. Um, so I, I saw that paper, I read it, and the, the weirdest thing about getting this paper um, in sort of reading the, the preprint before it showed up in print um, was that I couldn't identify any flaws in it. Um, like, it just seemed like a normal paper that I would read, you know, just every day as, as part of my graduate training. And yet the conclusion that I was reaching just couldn't possibly be true. Like, there, there was, there's no way that ESP is true unless, um, I guess, unless there's something fundamentally flawed about our view of, of physics. I'm not a physicist, so I can't 
know that for sure, but I think it's there's a greater likelihood that there was something weird about this paper than that a whole bunch the whole physics community is wrong. Um, I, I just was taking that as a given. Um, so it took a while for us to figure out what was probably wrong about that ESP paper. The author of that paper, by the way, is Daryl Bem. Um, he's a very famous social psychologist. Um, he, um, you know, he has a long story history of uh, contributions to a lot of different areas. I mean, now I guess I sort of wonder how much of that other stuff is true too. But um, anyway, it's he wasn't just some like. Uh, this wasn't a fly-by-night op operation. You know, Daryl Bem was a well-respected figure in the field, and so was, I think. Um, and he was also at a, you know, a top uh, university, Cornell. Um, and like I said, it was the top journal of our field. So what was probably happening there is that basically the, the usual ways that social psychologists, and maybe psychologists in general, maybe a lot of other scientists too, the usual ways that we do our science um, have some real flaws in them. Um, and uh, a lot of the uh, science reform movement, a lot of what we're trying to do with this movement is figure out what those flaws are and then try to build in some ways to fix those flaws to make sure that our science is, is better. Um, so um, this this realization that like the normal ways that we are doing science is, is it's a lot of why I view my field, social psychology, with some skepticism. Um, you know, I think social psychology is populated by a lot of interesting ideas that maybe are true. I just don't know which ones, which ideas are true. I don't, I don't know. I can't point to you with as much certainty as I used to be able to, to say like, yeah, that's probably true, or no, this probably isn't true. Um, we're starting to get, gather evidence about which of those the ideas are more likely to be true. And that's, you know, in some ways it's kind of an exciting time to be a social psychologist, but it can be really frustrating to like read a paper from 20 to 30 years ago and to say, well, you know, I, I can't tell if this is credible anymore. That's, uh, that sucks. That really sucks. Um, so I'll, I spend a lot of my time um, working on the, on the reform movement so that I can be a little bit more confident going forward if I read a paper that it's, yeah, this this has more, I, I can view this evidence as credible. I can be more confident that it was true than before I read the paper. Mm -hmm. Yes, so what would you say are some of the main faults in the way we do science nowadays? For, just to give an example, would you say that uh, fraud could be one of them that is for example if uh, is it that nowadays perhaps scientists and academics are put through a lot of pressure and stress and perhaps that uh, at least to some extent promotes fraud on their side and what else the the fundamental reason i, I think why um there are flaws with the current way of doing science is that what is incentivized in, um, in science is uh, publishable papers. Um, but what's this, the things that make something publishable aren't the same as the things that make things true. Um, the things that make something publishable are bold, sexy claims 
that are novel um, and ideally you want to spend as uh, few resources as possible per each publishable paper. So you want to maximize the papers that you get for your financial investments or your investments of time. Well, if you're spending less resources to validate a claim, um, that's going to have a cost in terms of it, it's it's um, that paper's uh, quality as evidence. Um, so that that I'd say is the the fundamental problem. Um, now there are a lot of different manifestations of that problem. To give you an example, um, the the more in general, the, the more observations you have of a thing, the more certain you can be that those observations reflect reality. Um, so if you have like, let's say you're working on an experiment where you have two groups of people, you show one group of people, one type of picture, another group of people, another type of picture, and then you measure their attitudes afterwards. So if you have 20 people per group, um, the the estimate that you get of the difference in attitude in those two groups is going to be pretty noisy. It's um, if you repeat that experiment over and over again, um, you're going to get uh, pretty different estimates of that mean difference each time you run the experiment. Whereas if you did that same experiment with say a thousand people per group um, and you do that experiment over and over again, you're going to get a, a pretty similar estimate of that difference in attitude each time you run the experiment. So it seems just true that um, if you have an experiment with uh, a thousand people per group, that serves as much higher quality evidence than that experiment with 20 people per group. Um, so in, in general, the more observations you have in an experiment, um, the better that that study will serve as evidence. Um, but there's an incentive to skimp um, because, like I said, the, um, the less resources you spend per study, uh, the better it looks in terms of your productivity and the, you know, the more accolades you'll get, um, the, the more success you'll get as a, as a scientist. Um, so that's one of those perverse incentives. The, uh, there's an incentive to skimp on resources um, to, you know, invest as few resources as possible to, uh, you know, get publications. And yet what's best for science is maybe spending a bit more time and a few more resources on, on an experiment. So that's, that's one source. Another source is that um, in, especially in an area like psychology or social psychology, um, the things that we're interested in studying, like implicit bias or attitudes or, um, uh, a lot of these concepts are really mushy and ambiguous, and it can be hard to know exactly how to measure them or even how to define them. Um, so maybe what you do if you're designing a study where you're interested in attitudes is you include, say, um, five measures of the same thing, um, because you don't know ahead of time like which one is the right one. But then after you run your study, it can be really tempting to select the measure that gave you the results that are most consistent with what you think is happening and just present those. And yet if you if you got if you use five measures, chances are one of those measures will have results that are consistent with your theory just because of noise, just because of random chance. Um, 
so what you end up with is this beautiful looking study um, where everything worked out consistent with your theory, um, except that that just happened by chance because you used five measures instead of, uh, instead of one. Um, so that's another source of, these are often called um, researcher degrees of freedom. They're little things you can tweak about. There are areas in your experiment where it's a little bit ambiguous what the right decision is, um, but it can be really tempting and you can find yourself exploiting those researcher degrees of freedom um, to make your theory uh, look better. Um, so the, what the science reform movement is trying to do is, uh, or one of the things that's trying to do is uh, figure out where these researcher degrees of freedom are and then um, figure out ways to constrain those researcher degrees of freedom so that um, when we look at a study, we can look at it and think that the evidence is credible. Um, so one of the best ways to do that, one of the ways that seems to be most successful at constraining research degrees of freedom is something called pre-registration. The whole idea is you just lay out in advance what, you, what you're taking to be your primary measure and how you're going to analyze it. Because um, if you say in advance, oh, well, you know, the Jones attitude scale is the thing that I think is the best measure of attitudes. And then it turns out that the Jones attitude scale didn't show the effect that you want. If you've laid that out, advance um, that show that constrains you and you're you're better able to say oh yeah you know I when I started the study I really did think that the Jones attitude scale was the best attitude scale um, so I'm not going to use these other attitude scales that I included in my study as you know ways to show that my theory worked out because that's not what I, I thought when I when I before I saw my results um, so I uh, one other question that you'd asked is is this um, is what's happening intentional fraud? I think in most cases, no. Um, so there have been a couple high profile cases of fraud, like um, there was a researcher named Diedrich Stoppel, um, uh, another social psychologist from the Netherlands. Um, and it, it turned out that he had been committing fraud for like, I don't know, since his dissertation, I think, um, for a really long time. Um, and there was a big scandal about Diedrich Stoppel and like, how, how could it be that this guy was committing fraud and nobody noticed? Um, I, I think in most cases, uh, when the quality of evidence is undermined, it's not due to fraud. Um, it, it might be due to the career incentives. You know, um, people want to advance their career and so they convince themselves that um, they predicted everything in advance. Um, Although I still think it's in cases like Dietrich Stoppel, it is shocking that nobody noticed that the fraud was occurring, um, even though there there seemed to be, like, if you looked closely at the papers, there there might have been tells that something weird was happening, but that, you know, it, it was never caught. So I, I think that's that's a problem and it's worth addressing. I think in most cases, though, most researchers are not committing fraud. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, so perhaps just one last question, and again about this replicability crisis, but now uh, toward another topic that is more about the theoretical foundations of certain disciplines. And since our conversation today has been focusing on social psychology in this case, uh, I would like to ask you if you think that perhaps 
Uh, and this, I guess, could be generalized to most social science, I would say, that perhaps one of the issues and one, another reason why perhaps there's this replicability crisis in, and it is very visible in psychology specifically, it could be because it should be more grounded uh, in in biology and biological processes. So uh, perhaps, perhaps uh, when we're studying people's behavior at the individual and the collective level and how people interact with each other, perhaps uh, through the last several decades, there has been a lot of work that has not really been very grounded in things like neuroscience and evolution and other biological aspects. So uh, do you agree with this or, or not? I'm of mixed minds. So I think it is certainly true that, and I'll just speak to social psychology here. I think it's certainly true that the theories, the scientific theories in social psychology are often a little bit fuzzy um, and nonspecific. And the reason that's a problem, the reason that that could contribute to the replicability crisis is that if you're, if you get a result that is inconsistent with your theory, if you're not able to even say what the theory is, it can be very easy to say, well, you know, actually there's this exception to the theory and here's why this result doesn't bear on the theory. Um, so the, if the theories are hard to pin, pin down, they're, uh, they're difficult to impossible to falsify. Um, and that's a real issue. Um, however, the reason I don't fully agree that um, the reasons for the replicability crisis are a lack of grounding in biology is that biology has a replicability crisis too. <laughs> um, there's, a, um, there's actually a project um, I, that's uh, spearheaded by the Center for Open Science to try to test the replicability of cancer biology. Um, and one of the findings of that project so far is that it's even it's difficult even to get to the step of replicating cancer biology experiments because the methods are so nonspecific about um, how to go about doing that replication. That's a real problem. Um, I, there's also a replicability crisis in medicine. Um, it seems like there's a, there are some replicability problems in uh, fMRI research because the it's really expensive to uh, get people into the scanner to do uh, to do the the imaging of the brain. Um, that means that there's an incentive to um, not run so many participants through the scanner, which leads to that problem of like you know noise. The the fact that if you did the same study over again, if you, um, you your sample is small enough that your results might be bouncing around. Um, and uh, that can undermine the credibility of the evidence. So this isn't just a problem in psychology. Um, I think part of the reason why um, there's been so much activity in addressing the replicability crisis in social psychology in particular um, goes back to that um, that paper, paper by Daryl Ben. Um, that the one that uh, seemed to show that um, people could look into the future, um, that really, that ended up setting off a lot of self-examination. Um, then also, I mentioned Dietrich Stoppel, the person who committed this 
a lot of fraud that also um, spurred people to think like, what's going on here? Why, why weren't we, um, why didn't we notice that there's these like weird errors hiding in plain sight um, that, you know, we should have picked up on. You'd hope that peer review would have, uh, would have picked up on those like tells that something is not right with this evidence. Um, so that might be part of the reason. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure why, why social psychology in particular beyond those, those two like big historical events. Like, was there something about social psychology? Is there something about the social psychology that sort of prepared it to, you know, start thinking about issues like pre-registration and how to um, address the credibility of our evidence? It's a really good question. I, I don't know what it might be about social psychology that sets it apart from other disciplines or psychology that sets it apart from um, medicine, for example. But it is, it is simply not true that the only discipline that's having replicability, price, uh, replicability problems is psychology. Um, other disciplines are, uh, are actively working on the very same problems that we are. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Forsher, just before we go, would you like to tell people what are some of the, the best places on the internet for them to go there and know a little bit more about your work? Yeah, um, the best place is probably Twitter. Um, I'm at PS Forsher. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, there's uh, there's not any other places like, for example, I, I don't know. Do, do you have your articles available somewhere or, or not? Oh yeah, I post um, all my articles on a an online preprint server um, called SciArchive. Um, it's another outcome of the replicability um, replicability issues in psychology, the science reform movement is trying to make our research more open. So I believe very strongly in that. Um, so if you want to read pretty much any of my papers, you can look me up, um, uh, go to SciArchive and download them. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. I will be leaving links to that in the description box of this video when it's out. So, Dr. Forsher, I would like to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to everyone. Oh, thank you very much. It's been fun. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.